All right, go ahead and flip to Genesis chapter 5. We're going to look at Genesis 5, verse 1, all the way through 6, verse 8, but I'm not going to read the entire thing. Uh, we'll get there. Uh, but let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read in the end of chapter 5, beginning in verse 29, and then we'll read through chapter 6, verse 8. These are the words of God. Now we called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the pain of our hands, arising from the ground which Yahweh has cursed. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now it happened when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were good in appearance, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he indeed is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they born bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. Let's pray. Our Father and triune God, give us humble, teachable, and obedient hearts that we may receive what you have revealed and do what it is you have commanded. Through Christ our Lord. And amen. You can be seated. The uh, section before us today has the characteristics of both an epilogue and a prologue. Um, at the end of chapter 4, we're introduced to Seth, and he's a new Adam, uh, a new Abel, someone who is going to spearhead this new humanity. And we're told also that at this time, at the end of chapter 4, you can look there in verse 26, there was a religious revival that had broke out. Men began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Now, this particular comment is there in order to anchor us in anticipation for what is to come later Namely, the widespread problem, the universal problem of sin and death, including the adversarial religions of the Sethites and the Cainites. So chapter 5 essentially fills in the gap of where chapter 4 ended, and it sets us up into chapter 6, and chapter 6 it basically serves as a preamble where the narrative continues and carries forward for roughly 1,600 years or so. Just to give you kind of quick math here, I know it's early, but we can do some math. Uh, the creation date is probably 4,044 or 4,046 B.C. Um, working with the numbers that we find here, that at Noah, Noah's age at the time of the flood was 600 years old, and he was 1,656 years away from Adam. So the flood, roughly, the time was 2390 B.C. 
So, you know, just you can do a little math at home, maybe once you, your mind is ready for it. But that's generally the parameters here of, of how this works out. Now, of course, the buildup here in the narrative leads us to Noah. That's where everything's heading at this point in the story, leading us up to Noah and God's decision to flood the earth. That is what we will cover next, next week. Lord willing, we'll talk about the ark, the animals. We're going to talk a bit about animals and our theology of animals. And then we're going to talk about um, what the ark symbolizes. Hint, Christ is the ark. Um, but that, that'll be next week. For now, the stage is set. Seth, his name means foundation, as we saw last week. Seth is the foundation. And we already know from the tension in the text that Lamech is the archenemy. Uh, he is the one who is undoubtedly the ruler of this age. Um, Seth is the seed of the Messiah, as promised in Genesis 3.15. And indeed, Seth, you'll find in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 3, when Luke uh, traces the genealogy of Jesus, he goes back to, to uh, Seth. Seth is there. And then, as we'll see, he talks about Adam as well. Matthew only goes to Abraham Luke goes all the way to Adam, and actually he goes all the way to God. Adam is called a son of God in, in Luke. So Seth's of, the, of the, the seed of the woman, the seed of the Messiah. Um, but Cain, Cain, we learned, is actually a seed of the serpent. He has, he's doing the enemy's bidding. Now, what will happen? These are questions we ask. What will happen? We have this tension here. The line of Cain, the line of Adam and Seth. What's going to happen? Who will win? Because this is a war. There's a seed war going on. Who will win? What exactly is it that happened before the flood came? What we call the anti-Diluvian, the anti-Diluvian period, rather. What led up to this? What, what led up to this moment um, when God would decide to flood the earth? And what about the mysterious Nephilim? Slight controversy in the text here. Should have some fun today with it. Furthermore, if Noah is, is chosen as a mediator, and indeed he is, and we should see him as a mediator in this regard, he was chosen for the task. What does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about God's promises by choosing one man to spearhead this ark project when everybody else around him has totally gone crazy? And moreover, as we'll see shortly, what is the relationship of God's grace God's grace, his common and special grace. What is the relationship of that grace to God's wrath and judgment, both of which are themes here in the text? And obviously the only way to get answers is to run to the Bible. So let's start with chapter 5. Now there's a lot to deal with here in chapter 5, so we're not going to get into the nitty-gritty. I'm going to skip around a bit. But there's a few important observations I want you to see in the text itself. First, notice in verse 1 that we're talking about the book of the generations of Adam. That phrase there in verse 1, the book of the generations of Adam. The word generations is actually used several times in the book of Genesis, and it's kind of like a bookmark for us. It helps us see where the sections are in, in Genesis itself. Um, but the word should be understood to mean history or records. This is the history or, or the records. The, chapter 5 is simply written records about Adam, Adam's family, and who came after him. Second, notice in verses 1 and 2, specifically at the end of verse 1, that we have a rehearsal of Genesis 1 and 2. 
In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. So we're, we're anchoring this whole narrative in the fact that God is tracing what's happening with man. What is man doing on the earth? Now, collectively, both Adam and Eve together are man, or Adam. The Hebrew word Adam, Adama, it relates to the ground. We remember, we covered that a couple weeks ago. But Adam and Eve together are man. Now, that's a good reason why women should take up the man's last name. But we don't have time to go into that. But why, why, is this, why is this here again? Why would God, through the pen of Moses, tell us again about this image of God, fruitful, multiply stuff? Well, I think that Moses, under the inspiration of God, wants to remind us that, one, God's original design was for man to fully reflect the image of God. It was always his intention. And the other reason is because man, because of sin, now possesses a tainted knowledge uh, a polluted heart, a cracked image. I can't go with Thomas Aquinas and say that man's reason was untouched by sin. Uh, as Reformed Protestants, we completely reject that idea altogether. Man's mind, his reason, his emotions, his thinking, everything was tainted, it was polluted because of sin. He still bears the image, but the image is distorted. That's how we should think of the doctrine of sin here. The progeny of Adam and Eve, the children, are all born into sin and iniquity, and the only way out is to trust in the living God. The only way out of that is to call on the name of Yahweh, which we saw here at the end of chapter 4. Now remember last week, we looked at the line of Cain, and the line of Cain ended with King Lamech and the sons of Lamech. Uh, we looked at the meaning of their names, which helps us to know more about who they were, what they did in terms of culture building, and why that's significant. But the, the same is true for the line of Seth. When the Bible uses names, I mentioned this already, I think last week, but when you read places like in, in, in the book of Judges or other stories um, in the Old Testament, we should pay attention to what names are being used because God is using that to communicate meaning, and that helps us understand and interpret the Bible. So knowing what those are really does help. So, in fact, if you compare the descendants, which I think we're supposed to do, when you're reading the early parts of Genesis, you are supposed to be comparing the line of Cain with the line of Adam. And you're, that's where the narrative is taking us. Who are these people? What have they done? And what is God's answer with his promised seed? Because that seed line is going all the way to the Messiah, and it will get threatened periodically. The story of Ruth illustrates that. But that line is going somewhere to bring us to Christ. So we compare them, and then when you compare them, you can see how opposite these men truly were. Now, the first man, Adam, we already talked about. His name means man. That's just, you know, what's your name? Man. <laughs> That's my name. That's who I am. So that was his name. Adam is also the particular kind Man is distinct in creation. Man is not animal. Man is man. Adam, we look in verse 5, he lived 930 years. <clears throat> Long life. Then came Seth, the foundation. He lived 912 years. That's <clears throat> in verse 8. After him was Enosh, whose name refers to the frailty and the fragility of mankind. Enosh, in verse 11, lived 905 years. Enosh begot Kinan, whose name speaks of lamentation. He was a lamenter, and this lamentation, of course, is against Mahujael, 
he's, he's the one who strikes against God. So there's a comparison of lines here. Uh, and he lived 910 years, verse 14. After Kenan was Mahalalel. Kids, can you say Mahalalel? Mahalalel. Rolls right off the tongue. Mahalalel, whose, his name means praise of God. Praise of God. And contrary to Methushael of Cain's line, he, des- he desired to kill the peace of God. But here Mahalalel actually gives praise to God. And so we have, a, again, a comparison of the two lines. And Mahalalel lived 895 years, verse 17. Yared, or Jared, as we say in English, is next. And his name means brought low. He's a humble man. He's brought low. And that indicates, I think James Jordan, um, he, he has an interesting insight on this. Um, he is opposite of Lamech. Lamech, I mentioned last week, was probably king of the world at this time. He was a brutal man, a terrible man, an evil man who sought power and glory, and that's what he did. And probably at this point, he was the king of the world. And now we have Jared who comes, and his name means humility. So he lived humbly, we assume, under the rule of Lamech, the evil king, 962 years. Verse 20. Enoch was next in line, and his name means dedicated. And this makes sense because if you read the book of Jude, Jude tells us that Enoch was dedicated to preaching against wickedness. He was a dedicated man living in an apostate culture. He preached against wickedness, um, especially against those who were naming the name of Yahweh. So he was really good at calling the church to repent. Enoch's life was marked by prophetic ministry, no doubt preaching against anyone and everyone, standing at the gates, proclaiming the truth of God, proclaiming against the, uh, the truth of God against the sons of Lamech, the evil king, and those who followed his ways. We notice in verse 23 and 24 that Enoch lived 365 years before God took him to heaven. Enoch did not die. He was, and then he was not. He was carried to heaven. Methuselah, Noah's grandpappy, Methuselah means man of the dart or peaceful death. And he, by the way, kids, if you've ever wondered, he wins the prize for the longest lifespan. He lived 969 years old, verse 27. I don't know at what point you start to feel old in that paradigm. You know, when the body starts breaking down, when you wake up having injured yourself from the night's sleep. Maybe around 800, I don't know. Now, Methuselah actually died just before the flood. So that just gives you an idea of lifespan here. Noah's father was Lamech, as we mentioned earlier, but this one is a godly king. He's a godly conqueror, unlike Cain's Lamech. And Noah's uh, father lived 777 years, verse 31. And he also died just before the flood. Now, finally, we're introduced to Noah. Noah, he had three boys at age 500, and their names were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, verse 32. Noah's name, this is important, by the way, to interpreting the text. Noah's name means rest. Noah, his name means rest. Which, interestingly enough, it's a reverse anagram of the Hebrew word for grace or favor. So we're supposed to connect Noah's name with this concept of favor and grace here in the text. So that's the emphasis. The emphasis is the importance of Noah. People read chapter 6 and all of a sudden we're in headlong into debate. The point is though, Noah. 
Noah's told about, and then there's problems, and then Noah is given grace. And that's the emphasis. And Noah's importance is because the grace of Yahweh God came to him. So Noah and grace are bound up with one another. Now, Genesis 6. Buckle your seatbelts. This passage explains why God decreates the world. Why, God, why does God decreate, or say it, it's the opposite side of the same coin, why does he bring about a new creation? That's the flood story. Why is he decreating and destroying all that he has made that was good in order to then renew it, to bring it to um, another, another new creation? Well, those are questions we'll have to talk about more next week. But when, man, when men and women live a long, long time, you can imagine that they tend to have a lot of children. And that was obviously the case with Adam and Eve. They had lots, of, lots and lots of children, and population sort of happened pretty quickly. Um, the first verse here tells us that um, when men began to multiply, so remember, we're talking about man. When men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, so Verse 1 tells us, it indicates that the world was populating at a rapid rate. The, pre, uh, the pre-flood conditions, a lot of scientific inquiry on this. Definitely read some of Ken Ham's work and others at Answers in Genesis. Uh, the pre-flood conditions were remarkable for human flourishing. There was something about the ecosphere, whatever. Um, the conditions were really, really good. Men lived longer, and presumably the condition of the earth itself allowed for higher rates of productivity. So not only did you live longer and your body didn't break down as fast, but also you have higher rates of agriculture yield. Maybe you just could grow crops quicker. Maybe it only took like two weeks to grow corn from start to finish. Don't know. Um, Whatever it was, clearly there was some uh, level of productivity that was, was going on. Despite the problem of death that we see in chapter 5, the descendants of Adam continued to grow. So God promised death. We know spiritual death is covenantal death. Adam didn't die right away. He was sent out, and he lived another 900-plus years. Um, But the problem of death was there, but people were continuing to populate the world. However, curiously enough, in verse 2, we see two categories, two categories of people presented here people in this population, the sons of God and the daughters of man. Now, this is where it gets really fun. The sons of God and the daughters of man. Some believe that the sons of God were fallen angels. And that that debate happened very on early in the church. Um, In the fourth century, you had Ephraim the Syrian. He taught that the sons of God were the Sethites. But you also had St. Ambrose who said, well, they were fallen angels. This was a debate very early on in the early church. Augustine came along and said, no, I think this is, he definitely the giants, Nephilim, there's a connection. Um, But he, even Augustine said, no, we're we're talking about the sons of Seth. Um, The problem here, though, is that this group of men married daughters. And Jesus tells us in the Synoptic Gospels that angels don't marry. And the question is, well, if they are fallen angels, did uh, God allow them a certain level of disobedience to marry the sons of, uh, the daughters, rather, of men? And that also begs the question, can angels procreate? And now you get into huge discussion about, well, can they procreate? If they can, do they not do it unless they rebel? Um, And part of the issue, too, with the text 
And I don't believe these are fallen angels who married women, um, by the way. Um, but there's a lot of good people, good theologians, they differ on this. The phrase is literally the sons of Elohim. And you can read Psalm chapter 82, Job 1 mentions it. Um, Psalm 82 about, I have made you gods. Um, we really should understand it to mean man has made judges. Remember, that was Adam's calling. He was to be a judge. He was to be a ruler. Um, Cain was supposed to be. Abel was the priest. Cain was the king. But Cain rejected his submission to the priest in that regard. That's why his offering was faulty. Um, he, he had foregone all of those procedures, and he became a wicked king. And as a result, we have descendants of Cain all getting worse and worse until we have the preeminent evil king, Lamech. But then we're comparing the line of Adam and, and Seth's children. So the sons of Elohim, can, Elohim can mean gods or rulers, um, and we have to decide how to you know, read this in context with the narrative itself. Um, we also see in verse 3 that God punished man and not angels. Look at verse 3. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he indeed is flesh. There's an emphasis on man even all the way back in verse 1 when men began to multiply. Uh, so the emphasis seems to be on, on humans um, and not angels. And what we have, I think, is this. We have sons of godly rulers from the line of Seth who apostatized from the faith and compromised on their convictions by marrying the daughters of fallen Adam and Cain. Um, the Sethites whored after the Cainite women, essentially. It's immorality gone wild is what happened. And as a result, God, God judges them and promises in verse 3 that the judgment will come in 120 years, speaking of the time of the flood. So rather than winning the Cainites to biblical, true biblical religion, uh, the Sethites are largely compromised, and they, like their father Adam, wanted to seize the tree of knowledge before it was time. Now, just a quick comment, too, on that regard. The, the difficulty that I have, just personally, and you need to have your exercise of private judgment on this, okay? But I'll tell you my line of thinking real quick. If we have fallen angels, then we have a problem because we have half-celestial, half-human babies running around. Sin is imputed from generation to generation through the man. So do these children who are products of angel babies, we'll call them that, angel babies, hybrids, celestial hybrids, did they actually inherit Adam's sin? If they didn't inherit Adam's sin, we have a major problem with the line of the Messiah. So there are things we have to work out. Now, did these fallen angels, demons, possess the sons of men? I could, maybe, maybe, because then you still have the sin imputed to the next generation, and the, thus they are still subject to the covenant of works or the covenant of life. Um, where they have fallen into sin, the law now condemns them, and only by grace can they be saved. And so there, there seems to be difficulty and trouble with this text that there's really no unanimous consensus on it. Um, but that's just kind of my line of thinking. And, and afterwards, if you want to talk more about it, we can. Totally up for that. Now the easy part, the Nephilim. <laughs> 
The Nephilim giants, they were on the scene before the flood. We know from Numbers 13, verse 33, they are mentioned again, the Nephilim. So clearly after the flood, they were still present. The Nephilim being the sons of Anak, the giants. We also know from Deuteronomy 1.28 and elsewhere that apparently we had giants on the scene. And they existed again before and after. And I think they were in fact giants. I don't think we have to make any, you know, logical leap here on that regard. They're very tall, very powerful men. Um, what's the most famous giant in scripture? Goliath, right? Um, so we have very powerful men here. And I think though, in verse four, it says that they were mighty men of renown, meaning that they were powerful and morally rebellious. So their fame is not in their size. Their fame is their apostasy. Um, digging into the Hebrew, the Nepal means that's where the Nephilim comes from. The root, though, means to fall or collapse or attack. So we're talking about evil men who did evil's bidding. They were terrible apostates. They were violent men. They made war against Yahweh and his people, thus creating utter havoc and chaos on earth, which is why, look at verse 5 and 6. Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. What does sin do? Um, anthropomorphically speaking, sin grieves the heart of God. It grieves the heart of God. Sinful hearts do sinful things such that God is said to regret the human project altogether. What will he do in response? Well, he will blot out man, he will blot out animals, creeping things, birds, all of it will go, he says in verse 7. All of it will be judged, all of it will be taken away and made new. And yet, despite this massive wide-scale problem, look at verse 8. This is the emphasis of the text, not the speculation of who's, who this is. The emphasis is verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. Yahweh, just before this, saw the evil. See the language of eyes, the theme that comes back up in Judges? Yahweh saw the evil, but he also saw Noah. The eyes in Scripture are the instrument of judgment. Um, remember they their eyes were open and they saw that they, were, they knew they were naked. Their judgment was fractured. They weren't able to discern good and evil because they weren't ready for it. But here Yahweh sees, he sees both good and evil. In fact, we know that God knows and determines and sets the boundaries for what is good and evil. He determines the difference between the two. As intimated earlier, Noah's name means rest. It's connected to the idea of favor or grace. But please note that verse 8 does not say that Noah was a perfect man and thankfully God found someone, anyone, who had their stuff together. It doesn't say any of that. It's not what it says. It says that Noah was the one who found or acquired God's grace and favor. It was God who bestowed the grace to undeserving Noah. Was Noah a faithful man who lived righteously? And we have to say yes because that's what Verse 9 tells us, Noah was a righteous man and blameless among those in his generations. Noah walked with God. Noah was a righteous man. 
but it's grace that makes it so. So how, friends, shall we live? The tension in the text is the outworking of Eden. It's the outworking of Eden. What is happening outside of the garden, out of the land of Eden? There's godly men here in the text versus ungodly men. At its core, this is the root problem with all of mankind. There are certain law structures that are fixed and immovable. The structure of man's image-bearing call. Men bear the image of God. By the way, that is the decisive doctrine of our day right now, especially when it comes to the abortion contest. Image of God is core. What does it mean to be an image-bearer of God? It, we're talking abortion, the trans, transgender confusion, fusion, all of that is, comes back to this most basic law structure that you can't change. Man is made in the image of God. So those are things that are in place. The centrality of man's heart is structured by God. The covenantal situation that man finds himself in long before he is born, all of that is a structure that is simply there. And moreover... The structure of life is inescapable. So like it or not, man must deal with the reality that he possesses an a priori, coming before, relationship with God, himself, and the world. So long before he's born, long before anyone is born, and when he then enters into the world, right, he possesses an immutable relationship with the triune Godhead. All men everywhere possess this immutable relationship with God. It's just what it means. It's built into what it means to be human. Now, this is what Jean-Paul Sartre got wrong. He said that existence precedes essence. Um, and that has fueled much of the modern psychology today, by the way. He said that existence precedes essence. He was saying that what man is, is determined by man's free decision. All right, so he comes into the world with no strings attached, but, but no one is born into this world without an essence, without a being, without a nature. No one comes into that without that already being there and established. Um, the, no one comes into this world without an essence, without a being, um, an expectation from God who defines being an essence. No one escapes that. Even if you, like Nietzsche, God is dead. Yeah, you said those words, but... That actually doesn't kill him. You're still in God's world. You still are accountable to him. Try again. To the contrary to this thinking, it is essence, being, nature that is imputed by God that then precedes being. Essence comes first. Sartre, he got it wrong. He got it backwards. Let me state this another way. God determines man's nature, what we call the self. God determines it. God creates the world that man finds himself in too. And God tells us how man is to relate to the world as well. This is the structural existence, the condition of humanity, like it or not. Everyone, everywhere is born into this situation. But the direction of man's heart is where we discover problems. The direction, the structure's there, but the direction is where we discover problems. When evil pollutes the heart, destruction ensues. This is why it's important to know what we mean by common grace. Another hotly debated topic. Let me define that. Simply stated, God's common grace 
is his self-determining will to sustain the creation despite the prevalence of sin. I'll say it again. God's common grace is his self-determining will, you could say willpower if you want, to sustain the creation despite the prevalence of sin. The common grace preserves sinful humanity when Jesus talks about it raining on the just and the unjust and those types of things. Because even an unbeliever is born into this world, a human, in relationship with God and must interact with the world in some fashion. But again, the direction is the difference here. Where will that man or that woman choose? Who, who will he worship? That sort of thing. So the common grace preserves sinful humanity and God's common grace does not allow man to be as evil as he could be. Heaven forbid. But it's also at the same time God's preserving of the goodness of his created order. So not only does he suppress evil and wickedness, but he preserves the goodness of his, of his order. Additionally, God's common grace is the context in which his special grace is turned loose on the world, chasing sinners down and bringing them to Christ. This is why Calvin, uh, Calvin articulates it this way. He says that, I'm paraphrasing and summarizing him in my own words here, but there is a general all-encompassing favor and disposition that God has toward the world in which he upholds the creation despite man's sin. God wants to uphold and sustain creation despite the fact that man just wants to ruin it and pollute it at every turn. God's common grace is in that. Now here in our text, we see that God does restrain sin. God does restrain it, um, which negatively speaking, obviously, is a constraining feature of the hand of God. So when we think about history and providence and how God works, he does not let evil men go to the logical end. Those who hate me love death, Proverbs says. That's the end. Anarchy, um, total lawlessness, the end is always death. It's meaningless, uh, meaningless death in their worldview. But God doesn't always allow that to happen. Um, he does lower his hand, and sometimes judgment comes in certain ways. But that's one of the ways that God preserves. He restrains, he constrains man. But there's also a positive aspect. God allows for evil men to build cultures. That was what we saw with the line of Cain. God allows evil men to build cultures, to develop their lives, and participate in civilization. He allows them to express their image-bearing because all men live quorum Deo before the face of God. And in his patience, God bears with sinners. He bears with sinners. He is a long-suffering God. And all of this is simply the outworking of his divine sovereignty. And when we say God is sovereign, we mean that God has the right to decree and to carry out those decrees. He has the right to decree things and he has the right to carry them out. That is his prerogative. That is God's sovereignty. In addition to this, we can see how the grace works itself out in the context of sin. Sin in a broad definition, is simply a deviation from heaven's union with earth. Now, the confessions will tell us, and rightfully so, that it's any want of conformity uh, or conformity to the law of God. If we don't line up with the law of God, we fall short, and that's what sin is, and that's still true. But think of it in terms of Genesis. What was God's intention for heaven and earth to be united? 
and for his people to be united in obedience um, in that earth, that glorious temple of the, of the garden. But that was fractured. So sin, in, in one sense we can say, is deviation from heaven's union with earth. So if God intends to unify heaven and earth, and he absolutely does, then God's creation must be maintained to that glorious end. Hence the work of the Spirit. Now, God's Holy Spirit maintains and preserves life. That's one of his roles. He testifies to the integral nature of creation um, and man's relationship to it. He, gives, he also gives witness to God's self-disclosure, his revelation through the two books of creation and scripture. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Thus, God's common or ever-preserving grace sets the stage for God's particular redemptive, recreative, renewing work of special redemption. Now note that you think of these in theological terms here, that God's general and special revelation of himself, you think of the works of creation and the works of scripture, God's general and special revelation of himself and his works, they form an essential unity. So we can distinguish between God's general revelation in creation and nature um, and then we can distinguish between that and God's specific revelation in Christ coming and, and the Word being fashioned by the Spirit's work. All of those are God's powerful Word. Um, but they're unified. And we have to think of it in the same way with God's common grace and His special grace. We can distinguish between the two that God does allow men to live on the earth, even in rebellion against Him, and He uses their evil to achieve His ends. But there is a commonality, but there's also a speciality to it. There's God's redemptive Holy Spirit work of regeneration and renewal in the lives of people. So these two things, they imply each other, and they're related to each other. Just like the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity, they interpenetrate the other. They're all connected, and they, they go hand in hand. And as a result of that, we can see that evil isn't a problem for God. That's the great tension in the text here. Is evil so great that God cannot do anything with it? And the answer is no. It's not so great. It's not a problem for God. He still uses it to achieve his redemptive end. And finally, that God is still sovereign over man's historical depravity. Just because men rebel against God, look at America today, it's safe to say we are living in active rebellion. God uses it. He's still using it. So take heart, church. Don't, don't fall into despair and despondency and depression. Take hope. You know, that's my attitude. Our attitude should be, boy, the enemies are all encompassing. They're all around us. We have them right where we want them. That sort of attitude. You know, they, they, uh, they cannot get away from us. So preach the gospel to them, right? But God, God is using evil. He uses evil though he himself cannot be attributed to being evil himself, um, he uses it. So history, history moves from wrath to grace, from general to specific, from common to redemptive, from pollution to renewal, from judgment to salvation. That's what God intends to do with the world. And now we find here in chapter 6, I think it's one of the most devastating critiques of man's condition. Look at verse 5. 
Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That'll condemn. In chapter 5, we saw the theme of death. Remember the generations of Adam? So and so, and he died. So and so, and he died. And he died. And he died. There's a tension. Death, we find, is an outsider. Death is an outsider. He's an intruder. He, not a he or she. Death is an intruder, a rebel. Death is the covenant curse on creation imposed by a sovereign God. So death is the condition of disobedience. The natural outworking of sin, of destruction, of evil is always death. Death always runs out at some point. It always runs out. What are the wages of sin? Death. What you earn by your sin, those are your wages, that is death. Now, it's important to realize that we have a rather striking contrast here, one which anticipates the gospel promise. We have generation after generation falling into death. We have wicked men getting inexorably worse to the point where God is ready to destroy them all. Indeed, God would, by the way, be just and righteous to destroy everything. He would. Unbelievers look at the ark story. Man, why would God destroy the earth? And our, our, answer, our question is actually, why didn't he actually do it to everyone, including Noah? Right? It's like, why would God send sinners to hell? Why does he let anyone into his kingdom? That's the wrong question. You have to ask the right question to get the right answer. So God would be just and righteous to destroy everything. We see sin upon sin upon sin, death and death and death. The, the sons of God, the daughters of men, more death, more evil, piled on more evil. And yet, one verse changes the course of history, but God, but Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. Noah was called on by God to be a mediator. He was called on to be a, 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 a go-between. He's a better able, the priest. He was given God's grace, not as a paycheck due for wages completed, but as a gift distributed based on nothing but God's sovereign pleasure. When God chooses to act, he simply acts. He needs no one's permission. He consults with no one, ever. God doesn't need our opinions. He doesn't need our counsel. The Lord is in the heaven, heavens. He does whatever he pleases. God is the sovereign. He, it's his prerogative and his alone. And he chooses who to save, who to elect, who to, who to bestow his grace upon, and so on. And this isn't unfair, by the way. It's not unfair. Depraved men do not want what is fair or what is just. Fairness, justness go together, right? That's what people think. When you talk to uh, an unbeliever for 10 minutes and you might get into conversation about what is fair, what is just. And they want God to be fair because they think he's not. They're charging God with injustice. What is just, though, is for God to condemn all of mankind for their sins. You have to keep that in mind. That would be just. That would be fair. That would be righteous. What we should want, however, is pure, undiluted grace. And that is what we have in the gospel. Noah is a Sabbath man. He's a rest giver. He's a mediator on behalf of the whole world because he will seek fellowship with God in covenant relationship, even after the flood. Noah is a type of Christ. 
God's intention was to bless the world with the fruitfulness of covenant relationship. Uh, Noah, as we'll see next week, he carries this theme forward. But ultimately, we go all the way to Christ. Noah points us to Jesus. Christ is the final Sabbath man. He's the final Sabbath man. He's the final rest giver. Jesus was the one whose yoke is easy, his burden is light. And instead of flooding the earth again, Jesus took upon himself all the sins of his people. The lying and gossip and adultery and slander and lust and pornography and murder and backbiting, disturbances, complaining, coveting, defrauding, um, cowardice, arrogance, I have more, the desiring praise of men, divisions, drunkenness, lack of sober-mindedness, boasting, false witnessing, foolishness, fearfulness, fornication, hatred, homosexuality, greed, hypocrisy, jealousy, envy, pride, love of self, um, living for pleasure, malice, murmuring, strife, unforgiveness, ungratefulness, thievery, reviling, false swearing of oaths, every single sin. Jesus took upon himself. It was Jesus who found favor with the Father, having learned obedience, Hebrews 5 tells us. Luke 2.52 explains that Jesus was advancing in wisdom and structure and in favor with God and man. It was the Lord Jesus Christ who was beaten by whips, beaten by whips with blood pouring out of his backside. It was the one who was taunted. He was the one who was taunted. He was scorned and derided. He was forced to wear a crown of thorns. He was spat upon. He was cursed at. He was treated like the scum of the earth. And all, all sin could do was throw insults, inflict wounds, and hoist his bloody body up on a wooden cross. Our sins did this. The evil intentions that we have lurking in our hearts did that. The evil intentions of the hearts of man must always and ultimately be reconciled at the cross of Christ. And yet the cross of Christ was the moment of both judgment against sin and it was a moment of grace for sinners. Romans 3, for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, God desires man to express himself in terms of the covenant. There is blessing there, and in Christ we are restored to that recreative blessing. Man's ultimate purpose is to serve the Creator-Redeemer, to give his, his heart, his soul, his mind, and all of his strength to the Lord's service. The goal is always the kingdom and the restoration of the world by the grace of God in Christ. Grace is the river of God's love that springs forth in the hearts of men. Grace is the substance of holiness imputed to a heart so that it can function in spirit-directed faith. Grace is the air we breathe. Thanks be to God and thanks be to the Son whose death and resurrection is ours for the taking. Grace, Edward said, is but glory begun, and glory is but grace perfected. The grace of God is the beginning, it's the middle, and it's the end. It's the birth and consummation of faith, the glory and crown of salvation. As Thomas Watson put it, reason makes us men, grace makes us saints. Grace is everything, and everything belongs to Christ, and all is in fact grace.
Father, we glorify you today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what we can see here in this text with regard to Noah and the grace that you bestowed upon him as you called him to this great task that points us to Jesus, your son, the rest giver. We thank you that your grace is sufficient each and every day, and we ask that you would remind us of that, that your Holy Spirit would convict us where we need conviction and comfort us where we need comfort. We pray that you would give, a, give us a knowledge of your word, Lord, so that we, as we labor in this world, as our kids grow and learn and mature, as we as adults continue to grow and learn and mature, we pray that your word would be fashioned in our hearts so that we might not sin against you. Keep our ways pure. Remind us day in and day out of that grace and keep our eyes from looking at vain things. As we approach your table now, Lord, we ask for your blessing. As we sing, as we partake of communion, God, as we glorify you and go forth, we ask that you would be with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.